And you may have a seat. If you can, open your Bibles. We'll be in Psalm 32 this morning. It's interesting. Two years doesn't seem that long, and it isn't in a time frame. I feel like I'm a different person than when I got here two years ago. I feel like the Lord has formed me in a very important way through my time with you all. And I thank you. I always tell and I joke around that I have family in many different areas. I have family in Kentucky. They speak very differently than I do and we do. I have family in California. I have family in Mississauga. And that's the beauty of the body of Christ, right? We are family. I have more and more connected with you than I do with my own brother who doesn't know the Lord. And that's the insane reality. Let me pray. Father, thank you for this opportunity to preach your word, to present Christ in his fullness. And may we see our deep need for you. May the facades of this world never allow us to fall for their lies. In your son's name, amen. In California, we have this magical place we like to call Disneyland. Uh, I'm not a fan of Disneyland. I have nothing against them. I don't like lines and standing in hot sun. But a lot of people like going to Disneyland in California. And, and the, if you've been to Disneyland or Disney World or any of the Disney things, you'll understand they have a motto, a slogan, which they like to promote. Disneyland or Disney World is the happiest place on earth. The goal of Walt Disney in creating Disneyland in his Disney enterprise was to create a place where people from all walks of life, all situations, whether they had money or don't have money, whether they are struggling with things or everything was going well, whatever that means, uh, they can go to a place and for a day, life was happy. Everything was magical and wonderful. And that's what makes Disneyland the happiest place on earth. While Walt Disney's intention was well done and he had a good heart, I guess, really, in reality, all Disney did was create a big distraction. He provided an escape from reality for a short moment, but never actually solved a problem. He created what I would call a facade that kept people from the pain of real life. So often in America, the North American culture uh, and setting, we live in this distraction-filled world. Disney just started it. It was one aspect of it. We, we paint a picture, a facade, to distract us from the, the pain that we're going through, 
the struggle with life, the difficulties. And so for a moment, we can not think about it. But in doing that, allowing that distraction to overcome us, we miss an opportunity to live a life that God has asked us and, and, and called us to live. And that's the abundant life. Jesus, in talking to the people, he, he says this, this phrase, he says, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they, that you, that me, that those out there who do not know Christ, that they could have life and have it abundantly. When we give into the distractions, when we give into the facades that we are tempted to live in, we miss an opportunity to live the life God has wanted for you. And that's the abundant life. So this morning, as we go into Psalm 32, a beautiful picture of abundant life, I want to offer you something better. Something better than a distraction-filled world. Something better than a temporary solve for a bigger problem. I want to offer you abundant life. The main point of today from Psalm 32 is this. The truly abundant life comes to those who put their hope in the Lord. I'll repeat that. The truly abundant life comes to those who put their hope in the Lord. It seems so vague. It seems so real. But I'm hoping through our main points that we can see this play itself out. That we can then begin to put some, some flesh onto this very vague statement. Because I truly believe that you and I were created in the image of God to not live a distraction-filled life, but to live a life fully rooted in the Lord. So our three main points will be today this. The abundant life comes in the Lord's forgiveness from verses 1 through 5. Next, the abundant life finds rest in the Lord's care, verses 6 and 7. And finally, finally the abundant life delights in the Lord's ways. Throughout these um, points, I also will present a facade that we can believe that will steal your joy. A facade that you and I are easily given over to that contradicts these points in hopes that when we leave here, we can, picture, we can see those facades and kill them so that you and I can experience the abundant life. So Psalm 32 is, uh, is a beautiful psalm. Most likely this psalm is written as a post-reflection of David's sin against Bathsheba and the murdering of her husband. This incident comes from 2 Samuel um, 12, uh, 2 Samuel 12, 11 and 12. And here we see the story of King David who has been anointed by God to be the ruler over Israel, overstep his bounds, move away from God's plan, and look onto another woman that was another man's wife and say, I want you to be mine, took her, impregnated her, got scared, 
and for the next so many verses tried to figure out a way to hide it. But while David thought he was able to hide his sin, there was someone who saw it all. God. So God sent Nathan, the prophet Nathan, to David to confront David of his sin. And throughout this psalm, I really believe we see a first-person reflection of a man who was caught red-handed in his sin by God. And how he saw that sin affect his life. And he saw something that we would think would be horrible. But the freedom that comes from confessing that sin, the freedom that comes from acknowledging what you have done against a holy God. I believe that David, throughout this psalm, wants us, his hearers, to not follow this path, but offers to you and I a better life that does not go down the same direction he went. This psalm offers us the abundant life. Well, this psalm has technically been labeled a penitential psalm, meaning a psalm that, rec- that, that has remorse for sin. I actually believe this psalm should be more characterized as a wisdom psalm. The reason for this distinction is that in wisdom literature, you're offered a two-way path. We see this in Psalm 1. We see this throughout the Proverbs. Is that you have a choice of a way to go. You have the way of the fool or the way of the wise, the way of the wicked, the way of the righteous. And we'll see this path play itself out throughout the psalm. And so David begins this psalm with a word, a word that's like the lights flickering at a play. The word's like a megaphone at kids' day camp trying to get 60 kids and counselors to pay attention. A words that you and I may gloss over because we've read them so many times, but a word that's offering us much more. The word I'm talking about here is translated the word blessed. It begins like this, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. And against whom the Lord counts, is blessed, and in whose spirit there is no Deceit. Blessed is a word that we, when you hear the word, we think of the word blessing, right? If I do such and such thing, God will bless me. But the problem is that that's not what the word means here. In the Hebrew and Greek, there's two words for blessed. And they mean very different things. The one word blessed means God, you do something and God blesses you. The Israelites are God's people, therefore God blesses them. But this word here doesn't mean that. This word here is the choice of an the the end result of a chosen action. The end result of a chosen action. So if I choose a certain way to live, I will live now the blessed life. We see this used in Proverbs 3:13. Blessed is the one who finds wisdom and who gets understanding. Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord. Who walks in his ways. Blessed are those whose strength is in you, talking about the Lord, and who and in whose heart are the highways to Zion. 
This word blessed is used 40 times in the Old Testament, 28 times it's used in the Psalms, and and four times in the Proverbs, every single time, offering you a better way of life. The one who finds wisdom finds abundant life. The one who fears the Lord experiences abundant life. The one who seeks strength in the God of Yahweh, in the God of Israel, is the one who truly has abundant life. So in many translations, use the word happy here, they're trying to get us to understand in a little way what the psalmist is offering us. If you read this psalm and follow its direction, you, me, will experience the abundant life that God created us to have with him. And this abundant life is not always what it seems to be. And we'll see this in this song. And this brings us to our first point. The abundant life comes in the Lord's forgiveness. The abundant life comes in the Lord's forgiveness. And it's going to go up against this facade of performance or appearance. It's going to come up against this facade that we can put on that we believe we have to perform well or appear well before people. Let me read this. I'll read the whole thing starting at verse 1 again. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. We'll see a big transition here. For when I kept silent, this is David talking, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of the summer. I acknowledge my sin to you. I did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the iniquity of my sin. The first five verses begin with a huge contrast of people. David writes a very descriptive way because David knows in a very descriptive way. These first five verses begins by him saying what it means to experience the forgiveness of God. It doesn't say, blessed is the man who gets everything right. Blessed is the man who has it all figured out. Blessed is the man who does not sin. It does not say that. It says, blessed is the man whose sins are covered by the holy, perfect God. He begins by saying that those who experience abundant life are the ones who have their sins forgiven. The ones who come before Yahweh and say, I have nothing to offer but my sin. Please forgive me. The words here, the first two verses are what David had talked about a few weeks ago called synonymous parallelism. A huge word that means they're talking about the same exact thing. I mean, it just means they are trying to get the same idea across twice. We see that a lot in Hebrew poetry where they say the same exact thing and sometimes we go, what's the difference in meaning? There's nothing. They mean the same thing. It's just we're sometimes so stubborn he needs to say it twice. He's trying to get across to us. He's trying to get us to hear something that he could not hear. That is much better to be forgiven by God than to appear perfect before people. 
And so David then goes like this. He begins this huge contrast. And, he, and you read these words, and they're illustrative, they're descriptive, because David knew what this felt like. He knew the pain of trying to hide his sin. And he says this, For when I kept silent, my bones wasted, wasted away. Your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up. In no way do you see life in those verses. In no way do you see throughout the Bible that life and sin are connected. Whenever you see sin, you see death. And so when David is hiding his sin before the Lord, hiding his sin by sending off the wife of Bathsheba to be killed, he's wasting away because sin has controlled his life. So if hiding sin brings death, then acknowledging your sin brings life. And you see that in that fifth verse. I acknowledge my sin to you. I did not cover it up. There's a funny story a pastor once told. He was a college pastor, and college pastors deal with a lot of young adults who are excited about marriage. And so this, this college pastor was telling this story about a time that after one meeting of the college ministry, he's standing up there, and he's just talking to different students. He's enjoying his time. It's probably a college ministry of 100, 150 people. And he's up there after preaching, just talking to different students. And he begins to notice this couple that he knew have been together for a while. And he begins to see them wandering around the back of the room. And as they're wandering the room, they're waiting. And you can tell there's something heavy on their heart. And he's watching them. And then, you actually know, slowly but surely, people start to leave the room. And they're still back in the back. And slowly more people leave. And finally, everyone's gone. And next thing you know, those two couple, that couple darts to the front to come talk to him. And they look at him and they say, Pastor, uh, we got to talk to you about something. And he goes, okay, let's talk. I mean, as a college pastor, this isn't his first rodeo. I'm guessing he knows what the conversation is going to look like. But they begin talking to him and sharing, like, hey, we, we, we have just gone a little too far in our, in, in our connection together. And we're just, we just were sorry for it. And, and the pastor steps back and says, well, that's when, first of all, I want to thank you for coming forward. But he says, I, I want to let you know that someone saw you. And he says is the fear of God really just opened their eyes. Like you can see they were scared. And they begin asking the pastor, so who was it? Was it our small group leaders? The pastor goes, no, no, no. He goes, was it one of our friends? He goes, no, no. He goes, was it you? He goes, no. He goes, God. And at that moment, the, the sense of relaxation came over their whole bodies. And, and it was all, yeah, we know God saw us. We know God was there. He said at that moment, his heart broke a little bit. Because they missed the point. See, our sin is not ultimately against each other. Our sin is ultimately against God. What David thought he was doing was hiding his sin to the people next to him. So that he may appear well. That may, he may not lose his position as king. 
forgetting the whole time that God was there watching him step by step. God knew the thoughts in his head. God knew every moment that he was deciding to hide it more and more. We all sin as Christians. You and I are with our sinners. I'm sorry if that ruined your day. It's reality. You are not perfect. Lord willing, you are growing in holiness day by day. But in reality, you'll never get there. But just as David becomes tempted to cover up his sin, we are so easily tempted to cover up our sin. We want to appear before others as better than what we really are. We want to have this facade in our life that all is well. Maybe you didn't cover up adultery, but there are things that you try to cover up so no one else can see. What David is trying to get you and I to understand that the abundant life comes actually when we admit our sin and confess it before the Lord and not cover it up. Covering it up brings death. You're, well, I might lose my job, I might lose my position. In the church, how people see me around. And I, I, I want to be careful as I say this, but you've been you've fallen for the lie that it's more important to be a pure well before man than a pure well before God. The abundant life comes in confession of sin before a holy God, acknowledging that you too need the cross of Jesus Christ. Just as much as the person outside on the street. Just as much as the drug addict. You need Jesus Christ to die on the cross for your sin. I never forgot the moment this came to realization in my life. I was sitting in, a, in Biology 101 my junior year. Sorry, great, my year four. Is that how we say it? Yeah, good. Thank you, David. I'm, David's translating for me over here. Uh, my year four in university. And sitting there, reading this beautiful book I had been received when I was in high school as a graduation present called The Gospel Primer. And I'm sitting there in this class with a hundred other people in my own world, which I'm in my own world half the time anyways, but it was a different type of in my own world, in my own world at that point. And I'm reading this, 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 this treasure that I was given before I knew Christ. And it, it, it reminded me, it was talking about the fact that my sin nailed Jesus to the, to the cross. My sin was shed for him. And that I was responsible for nailing the perfect Lamb of God to the cross. And for the first time in my life, it, it just hit me that I deserve that. But he took it for me. It took the prophet Nathan to convince David of his wrong. And how gracious it is of God to give us people in our lives that help us see our sin that we keep hiding. How gracious it is of God that he gives us people in our lives that help us see our sin that we keep to try to hide. How will you ever overcome this facade of performance? 
you recognize your need for Christ. We go back to that verse David read earlier, Romans 4, 5 through 8. Paul is quoting our passage, this. And it says, And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted to him as righteous. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from the works, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whom the Lord will not count his sin. Brothers and sisters, if you guys can hear my voice, I asked you to surrender the fact that you will fail. You will fail. You will sin. You will sin in ways that you are surprised that you can keep doing that. Surrender the fact that you cannot make yourself better through your own effort. Surrender to the fact that you are not strong enough to defeat sin. And surrender yourself to the foot of the cross where the penalty of your sin has been paid by the perfect Son of God. I'll never forget talking to a kid. He's, he's now married, just had his first kid about three or four months ago. His name, I'm not going to give his name. And I was talking to him. And I, I shared a verse. I totally forgot I shared this verse with him. And he got married about five years later. He, he wrote me a note. In the, I was one of his groomsmen. He wrote me a note. He said, For God gives grace to the humble, but opposes the proud. He goes, Nick, you shared that verse with me about five years ago at that point. So it was about seven years ago now. And I've never forgot that moment. I know my only way I'll defeat sin is just by admitting it, confessing it, and trusting the Lord. I want to appear well before God. And don't care what people think of me. I ask you, have you given over to the facade of performance and appearance, neglecting how God sees you? Join in the abundant life that God has given you, in following him and resting at the foot of the cross, that Christ finished that work for you. You don't have to appear well. You don't have to perform. You can rest in his perfection on your behalf. David has moved now from reflecting on his sin, the confession of sin, the forgiveness of sin. Now he reflects on the provision of care to him. He removes from reflecting on this, this, this reality that he hid his sin and now he has received forgiveness of that sin and now moves to the care that God gives those who find their rest in him. This brings us to our second point. The abundant life finds rest in the Lord's care. The abundant life finds rest in the Lord's care. This comes from Psalm 32, 6 through 7. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at, the t- at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. Selah. David moves the psalm along by beginning to ground his next two claims, our next two points, in the previous reality. He grounds them, he finds them in this truth that he's been forgiven, and now I can live in this way. He invites us, who have sought reconciliation in God, to now find our rest in God. The word therefore helps the reader understand that the bottom half of this verse is predicated, is founded on the top. The word therefore is upon this, referring to what has just been said. So if the abundant life comes to those who seek reconciliation with God 
through forgiveness of sins, then those who have been reconciled also find care in him. Verse 6 calls those who are godly to seek to pray to the Lord. The word godly there is, not, is, is a unique word. It actually is the same word that we get the word uh, hesed, covenant love, from. The translators translated godly to try to help us understand who it's referring to. It's referring to the people who have just uh, recognized their sin and now have forgiveness before God. And these godly people, they pray to the Lord. And they pray to the Lord that they would be protected, that they are now not face the great rush of waters. For us, rushing water does not mean much. We might think of the Credit River. I will say, as a surfer, you begin to have a respect for water. There is plenty of times in my great shape that I was in that I could not paddle out because the waves were so big. You want to feel small? Try to paddle out in 10-foot waves. You no longer feel like you are that mighty. And so in the ancient Near East, when shipping was a, was a very needed thing, but a very scary thing, the rushing waters, the chaotic waters, represented chaos in life. Turbulence. So when David says, the godly ones pray at the right time, and they will be protected from the rushing waters, what he's trying to get across is those who rest in the covenant of the Lord, rest in, God's, rest in who God is, they are the ones who are protected from the turbulence and chaos of this world. And then it says this, and you are my hiding place. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. It's like a kid Sometimes we can be like a kid. I mean, I don't know about your house. My dad's, I mean, I'm a pretty big dude. Not as big as Randy over here, but I'm almost there one day. But I knew as a little kid, if someone's coming into my house, I'm not the first one to go. My dad is going to be the protector. My dad is going to stand out, and he's the one who's going to take everything It's like me as a little two-year-old, sometimes if a robber comes in, I'm the one who's going to protect my dad. We act like that sometimes. In reality, let's step back behind our God, who is the God who owns a cattle on a thousand hills, and rest in his goodness. The people who have confessed their sin before God, acknowledging and resting in the finished work of Christ, find abundant life resting in God's goodness. And that's the beauty of the Christian life, right? Right? The beauty of the Christian life is not that we just get a get-out-of-hell-free card, but we get God. We are the ones who deserve punishment, but we receive care. This is so perplexing. Because I know me. Sometimes I don't love me. But God knows me more than even I know me. God knows you more than you know you. If you are his son and if you are his daughter, he cares for you so deeply. I couldn't imagine. I was thinking through a way to explain this. And I, I, I go back to Jesus and his words. And I think of, 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 a, of a prostitute or a tax collector in that first century. They're considered scum of the world. 
I mean, why, specifically with the prostitutes, right? The wives of the city know that their husbands are going to her. As a little girl, she's not, she's not hoping to go to this profession. Uh, the religious elites mark, marked her as a lost cause. Her family has marked her as a lost cause. She has marked herself as a lost cause. And then she goes into the temple one day, broken, hurting, trying to figure out, Yahweh, do you even know me? And she hears this word from Jesus, Truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes will go into the kingdom of heaven before you. As Jesus speaks to the religious elites, that prostitute who feels worthless for the first time in her life has heard someone actually cares about me. You wonder why those people follow Jesus. Jesus was hated by the religious elites because he hung out with the scum of the world. And they knew he cared for them. I mean, the person who wrote half our New Testament murdered, was responsible for the murdering of the first Christian. You wonder why Paul would say, I'm the least of the apostles. I'm worthless. But if it wasn't for God... And so you wonder when he writes this in Romans 8, 38 and 39, for I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. He felt the rest of God. He knew he did not deserve to be forgiven by God because he had done so much against that Jesus himself. He found rest in protection. Sometimes we believe we have the, the need to be the self-reliant people. We need to make sure we're taken care of. We need to be the ones picking up with ourselves with our own bootstraps. Can we rest in God's care? If we can believe that God can forgive us our sins to send his son to die on the cross for each one of us, can we believe that God is holding together the world in a way that we can't imagine that's so insane that's good for you? When you're suffering, you don't think that. I promise you. When you're suffering, you can't see a God holding together this world that's good for you. But if he gave up his son for you, he controls everything for you. Can we just believe for a moment that even in those dark times, he sees you, he cares for you, he knows you. The abundant life not only finds forgiveness in God, but it finds rest in God. And it finishes up to our last point. The abundant life delights in the Lord's ways. The abundant life delights in the Lord's ways. This, I'm going to just do verses 8 through 10 here. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding which must be curbed and with bit and brittle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but the steadfast love surrounds those who trust in the Lord. Again, David is offering us two ways to live. David is offering us two ways to live that he had felt himself. Can we follow the ways of the Lord or will we go on our own path? Will we trust that God has provided for us in the, what we need, how we need it? Or will we go our own way? 
It's a fight in you, right? David knew that fight. David failed at that fight. We so often fail at that fight. It's so interesting. I think David, I mean, we see this in Psalm 1 so deeply, where the psalmist is calling us to delight in the law of the Lord and meditate on it day and night, using the same word blessed here. We see this in Psalm 119, where we also see the word blessed there, calling the reader to please delight in the law of God. Why? Why is David writing this here? Because David knew the pain that came from going his own way. Knew the pain from taking his own path. Knew the pain from trying to figure out this life on his own. But God in his infinite wisdom, in his goodness and grace, has given us his word. And says, delight in the law of the Lord. Because in delighting the law of the Lord comes abundant life. Going your own way brings death. And wickedness will bring sorrow. But delighting in God's word, delighting in God's direction, brings abundant life. As you can see here, this psalm is providing you two paths. And they're very clear paths. They're a path that each day in and out, we have to decide, will we walk on the path that trusts the Lord or walk in the path that trusts our own wisdom? Will we walk in the path that wants to keep up this facade of appearance or walk in the path that says, Lord, you are providing more? David is like a loving father who hopes his kids will not do the same thing he has done. Like a loving father who says, I have failed, don't fail too. God is good. God's direction is good. God's grace is good. We have all acted like mules at some point, right? We've all acted like mules who had to be pulled off to the side and how gracious it is that God disciplines his children, right? And does not leave us in our own way. Think of this verse, Isaiah 53, 6. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. But it doesn't end that. That doesn't end there, right? But the Lord has laid upon him, eventually talking about Jesus, the iniquity of Saul. David also saw this in Nathan. When David recognizes his sin in 2 Samuel 12, 13, David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. If you are here, whether you've been a Christian for a day, a year, 50 years, you sin. Sin is still plagued. You are still plagued, but you are not a bond to sin anymore. You are free to rest in the forgiveness of Christ. Will you give up the facade of appearance? Will you give up the facade of self-reliance? Will you forget up the facade of going your own path and rest in what God has done for you? Delight in what God is directing you to do and see the loving care of God's hand for you. And then may we be like the psalmist here. As he finishes up, he says this, Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. What's the only thing we can do after that, right? Worship. Why is Christianity a worshiping religion? 
because we recognize what God has done for us and we have not put in ourselves. And we rejoice and worship Him. The Bible beautifully presents its readers with a better way. As humans living in a fallen world, we have temptations to seek abundant life in objects, in appearances, in other ways that God has never permitted. And David writes this psalm as an eager plea for you and for me to hear him and not go down his path. An eager plea to submit to the Lord, to seek abundant life in him and him alone, because he's the only one who can offer it. The question is, what path will you take? What path do you desire? The abundant life or the facade of abundant life? Let me pray. Father, we come to you and we're thankful. We're thankful that despite our imperfection, you are perfect. Despite our imperfection, you are worthy of all praise. And that in our imperfection, God, you forgive us when we call upon you. We do not have to have a a facade of appearance. We do not have to try things on our own. We can rest in your sovereign, loving care. And I pray that we would. I pray for us as we begin to take communion that our hearts, if there is unconfessed in our lives, that you would stir us up and we would confess it to you as as we are reminded of the beauty of what your son did for us through this taking of communion. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. Well, hopefully you all had the ability, like you remember to grab this cup and this uh, wafer. Uh, if you didn't, that's okay. Uh, right now we're going to take communion. And, and why we do communion every month and why we are called to do communion is, is to remember what Christ did for us. What Christ paid for us. So I'm going to read from 1 Corinthians 12, 23. For I received from the Lord what I delivered to you. Paul is writing this in 1 Corinthians, saying this is not something I came up with, but something we received from the Lord. And so as we do this, if you are not a believer, if you have not come to faith in Jesus Christ, I ask you to abstain from this, which means don't take it. And the reason why I say this, it's not because I want to segregate you. It's not because I want to put you as a separate entity. But it's because when we take this, we're saying we believe this. We believe the truth that this represents. We believe that this, this, this wafer represents a body that was really given for us. That this juice represents the blood that was really given for us. We just ask you to abstain from it. And so right now I'm going to read this verse. I'm going to just give us a couple of seconds to, as Aaron so beautifully said, to Selah. And I want you to pray. And then I will, we can take this together as we remember the body that was broken for us. So I'm going to just give you a couple of seconds to pray. Then when I read the verse, we'll take it together.
For I received from the Lord what I also delivered you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given things, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. I'm going to invite Aaron and Daniel to come back up here. And I'm going to just pray for us. God, we thank you. We thank you that we don't have to keep up appearance. We don't have to be perfect. Father, your son was perfect for us. May we always live in, the, in rest in the perfect, perfected perfection of your son, the finished work of Christ on the cross. Lord, we do know, I mean, we need to always remember that without you, God, there is no abundant life. But in you, we have life, abundant life forevermore. Praise in your son's name.